we've been in John for so long. I don't know whether anybody still has an outline or not, but if you still do, where we are coming to at this point, at the end of the 12th chapter, is under the Roman numeral 2, Christ ministry in the world. And we're all the way down um, to P under Roman numeral 2, Jesus in Bethany in Jerusalem. And you'll note in John's Gospel that the end of chapter 12, this is the last thing he says or teaches to the world. After this point, according to John's Gospel, his ministry will be to his own. Roman numeral 3, Christ's ministry to his own. And we'll have, coming up in the 13th chapter, the foot washing and the announcement of the betrayal and the upper room discourse. So everything after that point, he, he speaks, you know... Um, to his disciples and gives them many lessons they'll need to know. Uh, more than that, he'll have the trial and he'll be before Pilate, but he will never, and Pilate's not one of his own, but other than Pilate um, and the ones who uh, he faces in a trial situation, he will not speak to the world except as he speaks through the disciples and what they'll share with the world. So if you'll keep that in mind, we'll finish up the 12th chapter today, hopefully. We left off uh, last week. We had the verses uh, where he was giving the three uh, things that he wanted us to learn, all of us to learn, that a grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die before it can bear fruit, before it can live and bear fruit, that a man must love himself, a man who loves himself is lost, and a man who hates himself in this world will be kept safe for eternal life. So he wants us to learn a lesson that in order to live in Christ for eternity, we must come to a point where we're willing to give our lives completely and unreservedly to Christ. In other words, we must die to self and live in Christ in order to have life. Uh, the third thing, if you want to follow him, if you follow me, you'll serve me. These are three things, the three lessons that he wanted us to learn. Then he said, and it's really kind of lifted out of the Garden of Gethsemane experience, I'm sure. John doesn't go into any details about the Garden of Gethsemane experience of the Lord. But he does say, my soul is in turmoil. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. And then he says, no, it was for this that I came into the world. And in every gospel, it, it makes clear that Jesus Christ, the Son of God came into the world to save sinners, to save a world. He came as the sinless, spotless Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And John said this in the very beginning, and he said everything will build onto that fact, that Jesus did not just come to be a teacher, he did not just come to be a prophet, he did not just come to be a miracle worker, a showman, he came to save people from their sin. So if you ever miss that, you've missed the whole essence of his purpose and mission on this, on this earth during those 33 years. All right, so he says, no, it wasn't that uh, I'd be delivered from this hour. This is what I came from. But he said, Father, glorify your name. And here we have the third account of where the voice of God the Father spoke from heaven. The first one, if you uh, remember, was when he was baptized. And then the voice of the Father spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And he endorsed. He endorsed at the very beginning of the mission of his Son on earth. He gave his endorsement. This is my Son. I'm well pleased with what he's about to do. And then he spoke again from heaven uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration when he said again to the Son, you know, his stamp of approval, again on that final 
period of his life, that final period where he would go into Jerusalem for the last time and he would be crucified there. Now the third time is in the Garden of Gethsemane, or this experience, which is probably the Garden of Gethsemane, where the voice says, I have glorified and I will glorify it again. And these three unique experiences, I think we can learn something from because I really think this is the way he still wants to speak to us. In these three instances, when we start out our mission, when we start out our life in Christ, we should hear the voice of the Father saying, I'm well pleased, I'm well pleased with what you've done in giving your life to me. I'm well pleased. We should hear those words, whether they're audible or not is not important. We should be impressed with the fact that God is pleased that we've given our hearts and our lives to him and we've started out on a journey, if you want to call it that, a journey through the rest of our life on this earth. We should hear him any time we go into a specific kind of task. As Jesus was about to go into the task of actually giving his life that last week, we should hear a voice from heaven speak to our hearts speak clearly to our hearts when there's a certain task to be done. It's, it's a call, if you will. Call it what you want to call it, but we should hear something within our souls that says God is leading, God is with us, God is going to equip us to do whatever it is that he wants us to do. We should know that God puts his stamp of approval on that. And any time we find ourselves where our souls are in turmoil because of a circumstance, a crisis, any situation, we should hear the voice of God speaking to us at that time. At this time, we brought out some things last week. Whatever you may think was the reason for the agony of his soul, there are many different uh, ideas about what he was agonizing over. But whatever it was, his soul was in agony. He says so himself in every one of the gospel accounts. And when we're having a time of turmoil, and crisis in our life, we should be so surrendered and so submissive and so in tune with him that we can hear him saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. What I want to do is glorify my name in and through this situation. So we should be hearing from God along the way. God has not become silent. God has not quit talking. He doesn't talk, as I said before, in an audible kind of way. He doesn't speak in words that just say it like you're hearing my voice now. But he says it just as clearly when he speaks to our hearts. When he speaks to the very depths of our soul, we should hear it. And if we're not hearing from him, it's not because God has become a silent God all of a sudden. It's because we're not listening. You see, we don't hear anymore from God because we just don't listen. We want to do all the talking. We don't want to be, do all the demanding and all the commanding. When we pray, that's what we do for the most part. We're telling him what to do, telling him what we're going to do, telling him what we're not going to do, telling him this, telling him that. Very seldom do we ever sit very still and listen and listen to what he wants to say to us. So we can get a lesson here that would probably change our whole prayer lives if we would ever learn that when Jesus, all through that ministry, all through his life, he was so in tune, so in the place of communion. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had um, the three stages, the service, the communion, and the worship. These three always go, hand, go along in that order. For instance, service is always connected with obedience. And until you learn to be obedient, until you learn to be willing to serve, you will never have communion where you can hear the voice of God speaking to your heart. People want to hear from God. People want to hear the voice of God, but they're not willing to pay the price of obedience. 
And so obedience and service comes first. Then the, the communication is opened up. The lines of communication are opened up. You can begin to hear from him. And then the third stage is worship. Not until you're willing to be obedient, until you're willing to serve. Uh, are you able to commune with God? And not until you're able to commune with God will you ever worship God. So it's a threefold thing. And we cannot pick and choose what we want to do. See? We've got to do it his way, or we don't do it at all. We don't hear from him at all. It's not because he doesn't want to speak to us. It's because we shut off communication with him. Our, our refusal to listen, our refusal to be what he wants us to be. All right, so now he says, when the Father speaks, he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Have you ever t come to a place in here where there's a crowd standing by where everybody agreed? There hasn't been a place we've come to where there was a crowd that they didn't split the crowd wide open when something began to happen, when God began to speak or Jesus did something, performed a miracle or something like that. There was always a division among the people. And it's because when you have a crowd of people, very seldom are 100% of those people at the same level, at the same place in their Christian experience. If all of them were Christians, you wonder today why you can come to, um, to hear. There, well, take, for instance, our revival coming up. Mike Gilchrist to be here, and everybody knows that this man is maybe one of the foremost voices of God today. He speaks a clear, new, fresh word from God every time he delivers a message. Well, I guarantee you, in that group of people, in any one of those services, when they go out, there will be some who say, Oh, I heard, I heard God's voice. I heard from God. God spoke to my heart. There will be some who will do nothing but go out and say, you know, I can't believe anybody would just stand there and just rattle on for an hour and a half, you know. And, and all we have to do is come and sit, and we can't ever get out. It's, it just lasts forever. And the, see the different attitudes? And you'll have that every single time. You can have a, a group of people gathered together and a spokesman for God is speaking. You will never have unity among that group of people unless maybe they're about three, maybe three at the same level. But if you have a group of people. All right, so here's the voice of God who speaks. Jesus heard it. Jesus knew what it said. Apparently, if John was there, he knew what it said because he records it for us here. But there's some who said that was thunder. See, that wasn't nothing but a lot of noise. <laughs> it's the voice of God. And they said, that was just thunder. Well, there was another group of people, maybe a little bit beyond where those were, who said an angel has spoken. They must have heard a little bit of something that sounded audible, you know, a little bit of something that sounded like maybe it was somebody's voice, but they didn't know it was the voice of God. You see, they were not ready to receive what God had to say. And the sad part about it is that Jesus said, this voice spoke for your sake. This voice was not uh, speaking to tell me something. He knew it already. He was so in tune with God the Father at that time. He was saying to them, this voice spoke so that you can hear that I'm going to be glorified in all that's going to happen, all that's happened before, all that's going to happen out in this week that's going to come. All right, so uh, now is the hour of judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be driven out, and I shall draw all men to myself when I'm lifted up from the earth. And this he said to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Uh, John 
always comes along and puts a little insert in there to explain to us what, we're ta what he's talking about because in the Bible it says that Jesus was lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we know that that serpent was lifted up so that those who looked upon and trusted in what God had done that day would be delivered from their sins, would be delivered from physical death, really. And this was a picture of the Christ and what was to happen on the cross. When we look to that cross and look to what happened there, we're delivered from spiritual death. Not physical death, but spiritual death. And so he says several things in that. He says, now is the hour of judgment for this world. And once again, he's going to go in into these last verses to say that judgment of the world did come in the cross. Judgment of the world did come in the cross. The world is judged by the cross. Whether you believe in Christ or whether you don't be believe in Christ doesn't matter. The world is judged by what happened that day when God's Son died. A sacrificial, spotless, sinless lamb of God for the sin of the world. The sin of the world. When that happened that day, every person in the world would be judged by what happened on that day. You'll be judged. You'll be your own judger, really. When you come, whatever you do in, in the way of accepting or rejecting Christ's atoning death on that cross, you judge yourself by whether or not you accept or reject. And we'll go into that a little bit more as we go on um, further down, but I want to bring out some things in that that I think are really important, but I don't want to do it here. All right, so he says, now shall the prince of this world be driven out. Now, we know that, that in the beginning, in Genesis, God said, gave the world, the care of the world, to Adam and Eve. They were to care, and they and their descendants were to take care of the world. They would have dominion or rule over the world to care for it. Well, when they sinned and deliberately rejected what God had said for them to do, then Satan had control of their lives, and he had control of the world. So that began back in the Garden of Eden experience when they rebelled against God. But what he's saying here, the prince of the world will be driven out. And it's a process. What happened on the cross, and here again, everything that he's saying from now on is going to be looking to the cross. So you have to see everything in light of what happened that day on the cross and the death of Christ. What happens is, and let me see if I can put it down kind of a little more clearly, is as far as sin is concerned, we have three categories. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the presence of sin. So what happened that day on the cross was that anybody who came to the cross and believed was delivered from the penalty of sin. Anybody who comes to the cross and sees what happened there, trusts that, incorporates that into their life, is saved, is born again because of their trust and faith in the Son of God, is delivered from the penalty. So the, the devil is, is banished there. He has nothing to do. When a person wants to come to that cross and accept what happened there and be born again, then he has no control as far as the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. But the wages of sin were paid on the cross. And when I go to the cross and claim that for myself, claim that as an individual for myself in the blood of Christ to atone for my sins, then I'm delivered from the wages I should pay. And Jimmy Ruth sings that song, I Should Have Been Crucified. Listen to the words of that. They, if they sing it again, and I'm sure they will, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. But I didn't have to. He did it. And because I saw that one day, I heard it with my head. I wanted it with my heart. I acted upon it by receiving him to myself as my atoner, my redeemer. Because of that, I was delivered from the penalty of sin. And the devil can't do a thing with me there. You see, he was banished. 
in that experience as far as the individual is concerned. Now, in our Christian life, as far as the power of sin is concerned, right now, to the degree that I will allow the Lord to control my life, the devil has no control as far as the power of sin over my, my life in a, a given day, which is a thrilling kind of thing. If he's giving you trouble, he gives us all trouble. The closer you get, the more you, you get to where you're walking with the Lord, the more he's going to try to get you. Because if there's one thing he cannot stand in his world, you know, while he's the prince of this world, if there's one thing he cannot stand, it's for somebody to walk with Jesus every day. If he loses your soul, he wants your life. He wants your testimony. He wants your influence. And so he's going to hurl everything in the world at you. Yesterday, um, my daughter said, at the end of yesterday, she said, Mother, the devil is after you with everything he's got today. He was. He really was. Boy, he let go with both barrels yesterday. But he can only have power on me if I let him. Over me if I let. I have to let him. And if every time he hurls something at me, I fall before the Lord and say, You have control. I want you to control this situation. I will not wallow in self-pity. I will not give way to him. I will not allow him this victory in my life. I, and I turn away from him. He has no power over me. You see, that's the beauty of the whole process of the Christian life. That's the beauty of the provision he's made for us is that I'm able to be victorious every day no matter what happens. It doesn't matter what happens. This lady who's going through this terrible kind of, of if she can let go completely and allow the Lord to have complete control in this, she can have victory even in a situation like divorce. She can have victory. She really can. The devil will have no power over us in any given day if, we have, if we're so surrendered to the Lord and walking so closely with him that that protection is there in such a way he can't get through. Now, I won't be delivered from the presence of the sin as long as I'm in, in the world. When you're in the world, you're surrounded by the presence of sin. So that's going to be here. I have protection. I have uh, deliverance from the penalty. I have deliverance from the power. But only until Jesus comes back again and Satan is, is bound. And then one day he's just eventually thrown completely out of this, this place. You know, only then will be, be delivered from the presence of sin. But all of these things are included in what he's saying. Now shall the prince of the world be driven out. Ultimately, God's will will be done and the very presence of Satan and sin will be banished forever. In the meantime, we don't have to be defeated by it. We can be delivered not only from the penalty but from the power. Claim that. And every day when you get up, if you want to know how it's done, every day don't wait until 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock or 3 o'clock to begin to draw close to God. You know, sometimes we read over and over, resist the devil, flee from the devil. And we very seldom go back up one verse and, and it says, draw near to God and resist the devil. And if you miss that, you cannot resist the devil. You can't fight him. That's a power. You know, spiritual power. You cannot fight him by yourself. But as you draw close to God, from the very minute you open your eyes, you have that power of God which is greater than the power of the devil working for you, working in and through you. And you can resist him no matter what happens in the course of that day as long as you... And, and I think when you stay in that state, I think the exciting thing about it, when you stay there, stay so close to him, walk hand in hand with him, don't get ahead of him, don't lag behind him, you know, don't try to go your own way out in an avenue where you think you ought to be. But when you walk right with him, the tremendous peace that's there, you know, and you can hear the voice of the devil. You can hear, you can discern the voice. You can know. 
And only in that uh, surrendered state you can know the voice of the devil. And you won't be confused by it. All right, so he said, I shall draw all men to myself when I'm lifted up from the earth. I notice when I pray many times, I pray um, that Christ might be lifted up. How many times do we pray that Christ might be lifted up? We don't want to be the one to draw attention to ourselves. We don't want this. We want Christ to be lifted up in such a way that you see him. You see him. You don't see an individual. You don't see an instrument. Well, many times people take this verse and say what it's saying here is that the minister must lift Christ up or the teacher must lift Christ up so that all men will be drawn to him. Well, all men are not going to be drawn to Christ in a salvation experience. Hopefully the whole world will be confronted with the cross and everybody will have to make a decision to accept or reject him. But what he said, he's indicating here, and John goes on to make it clear to us, he's indicating the kind of death. He will be lifted up on the cross. He'll be lifted up uh, for a time, for a time there, for that six-hour period. He was being led into the process of taking on all the sin of the world, past, present, and future, your sin and my sin, upon his own body. That's why his soul was in turmoil. It wasn't so much the physical pain it, as it was the knowledge that he would have to take upon his own body. Uh, this is all prophesied all through the Old Testament. He would have to take upon himself all our sins. Now, you know how much you've done, and I know how much I've done. And then you take all the rest of the world, past, present, and future, and take all that ugly, dirty stuff in us, you know, past, present, and future, and put it upon the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who had never known any sin whatsoever, and your soul would be in turmoil. It makes your soul go into turmoil just to think about what he had to go through, especially when you realize that it should have been us who rebelled against God. We're the, we're the sinners. He didn't deserve to have to go through in what you should have gone through. But that's not the important thing. The love of God was manifested there in a way it never was before and never will be again because that was it. You either trust what happened on the cross that day or you just dismiss ever coming to know God in a personal way. He said, this was, this was the gift that I gave to the world. There's no other gift he's going to give. If you don't take his son, you don't take uh, God the Father, and you, you sure don't take eternal life with him. All right, so he said, when I'm lifted up, uh, he'll be lifted up in the crucifixion. He'll be lifted up again in the, he was lifted up in the ascension experience. He was lifted up um, as he sits beside the Father, the right hand of the Father in glory right now. All of these are liftings up, but right here he was talking about the cross. And so everything else, he's going to say the rest of this, this chapter is going to hinge on the fact that you will be judged by what you do with Christ on the cross. You will be judged. And we had a long chapter on this earlier in John where uh, it made clear that you could, so that you could understand that the judgment you bring upon yourself in that, and I used an example, and I want to use it again because I think enough people weren't here. It's like, how do, we, how do I judge myself when I go to the cross? How would I become the one who pronounced judgment upon myself? God <coughs> desires that everybody be saved. It's God's plan that the blood of Christ cover everybody's sins. And it's his desire that every single person would be uh, won or wooed in such a way that they could come to know him and have eternal life with him. That's what he desires more than anything. But that's never been the way it was going to happen. Man has free will. And there have always been those who would choose to reject the Son of God and what God did in giving His Son that day on the cross. And so what happens is kind of like, let me give you a, uh, an earthly analogy and see if you can draw the, the picture. Uh, it would be like if somebody brought to the, the civic center 
over in the art gallery, that part, the art, what is that called? Yeah, well, whatever. Anyway, if they brought all the great master's paintings, I mean, there were representative paintings from Michelangelo and Raphael and Monet, I mean, just the whole works, they were all down there. And I had a friend I knew had never had any kind of exposure to any kind of paintings like this. He never had any exposure to this part of the art world. And I loved my friend very much. And I went to my friend and I said, listen, oh, there is a priceless collection down there. Oh, they brought it in. It's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. I want you to see this. You will, it'll blow your mind. It's, it's been for generations. I mean, nobody has questioned the fact that these were the masters. If these paintings are near perfection, as near perfection as, as any painting will ever be. And I say to them, I want to take you down and expose you to the most thrilling thing you have ever been exposed to in your whole life. Now, I know that's true. And I know those are great masters. And I know those paintings are priceless, see. And I want my friend to enjoy and appreciate it that much. So I take them down, and when they get in that museum or that gallery, and they begin to look around, and they see nothing there, you know? Bunch of canvases. Somebody paint, and they're, you know, it could, they'd rather be anywhere than there. They don't see what I'd see in this at all. They don't appreciate it one bit. And they just are bored to death, and they refuse to look and see the clarity and the depth and the perception and all of these things in it. They refuse to see that God had just endowed these people with great talents and given them these tremendous talents, and we were in the presence of works of art. And they refuse to see this, and they leave. Well, now, what happens? Did that make the, the paintings any less masterpieces? Did that make my love any less real? Did that make these great masters any less the greatest who ever lived? No, it didn't. What happened? My friend judged himself when he went in and refused to see the beauty in it, refused to, to receive the thrill into his own heart and soul about being in the presence of something like this. He judged himself to be absolutely, totally lacking in appreciation of art. All right, now that was used by Ironside. Um, both I liked it so much, I thought that maybe it says more to me than, than to anybody else. But I think that's really the same thing. When you come to the cross, one person can come there and just, oh, their heart is just open, and they just, they see what God did, and they see the love, and they see the pain and the agony, and they fall on their face before it, and they say, this is the most tremendous work of, of love we've ever seen and we can't believe you would do this for me and oh you just you just your whole soul becomes wrapped up in what happened that day another person can can't come to the same cross be exposed to the same teaching the same knowledge and say I could care less now did that make the work any less real did that make the love of God any less real did that make the, the price of sin or the, uh, the payment of sin any less real? It didn't. It's simply this person just judged himself by saying, I don't want it. I don't see anything lovely in it. I don't see anything beautiful in it. I don't see anything precious in it. I don't want it. Now, God didn't do that. The person, the individual did that. And so we should not go around talking about what a horrible God he is, you know, who would let somebody go to hell. He never sent anybody to hell. He made provision for everybody to be delivered from hell. We send ourselves when we choose to reject the gift that he gave, the payment that he made for our sins. It's unreal to think anybody would reject what he did on that cross. All right, th verse 34. The people answered, Our law teaches us that Messiah continues forever. 
What do you mean by saying the Son of Man must be lifted up? What Son of Man is this? And Jesus answered them, The light is among you still, but not for long. Go on your way while you have the light, so that darkness may not overtake you. He who journeys in the dark does not know where he's going. While you have light, trust to the light, so that you may become men of light. After these words, Jesus went away from them into hiding. So the first thing you have, the people, this group of people who were gathered around and heard him say this. And they were beginning maybe to wonder if he was the Messiah. Now their picture, everybody knows, is the Messiah was that he would be a political Messiah, would come as King David had conquered and ruled. He would conquer and rule like this and deliver them from Roman oppression. And they were beginning to see already that this was not what he was doing. Sure, he had lived a good life and he'd done many wonderful things, but he was not showing any evidence whatsoever of overthrowing the Roman government. And so they're not understanding uh, at all how he could be the political Messiah. Besides, their Old Testament had told them the prophecy had seemed to indicate that that kingdom would be forever. Now here's this man who's saying he's Messiah, and some people are believing that he's Messiah, and here's this man saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die. Now that doesn't make any sense to these people. How can he be the Messiah? How can he be our deliverer if he's going to die very shortly? And they're so confused. And Jesus begins to expound to them something again. He had already told them that he was the light of the world. Now he says, and it's almost a repeat of the things that he's saying in this chapter almost repeat lessons. Sometimes as teachers, you know you have to come along and you have to teach the same thing over and over again. And, and where your class is concerned, if there's a particular need, you can work that need into every lesson, it seems. <laughs> you can take almost any portion of Scripture and, and reach out and meet needs of your particular classroom. Well, this was Jesus' classroom. This was his, his group he was teaching at that time, and it took lesson after lesson of going over and over and over, bringing the same truths that they needed into each particular discourse. So, so far as we have recorded in the scripture, they just never did quite understand what he was saying until after he had died. And then they began to look after the death, after they saw his resurrected body, they began to see. Oh, now we begin to see what he's done and what he was saying and what he was trying to tell us. But we usually are so thick-headed until we don't hear half of what somebody is expounding to us. All right, so he said, um, the, the light is among you. All right, go back to the Son of Man. When he mentioned Son of Man, this was Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. They would go back to Daniel seven fourteen. Go back there just for a minute. Let's see what that says. Maybe that will give you a better idea of... Um, their confusion. 7.14, in the beginning of that chapter, he, he had had the um, dream or the vision of the Colossus, and he had shown the, the four great world empires, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the fourth beast, was something that was even indescribable. And then he comes down, at the end of these, there will be no more world empires. At the end of the, verse 13, around about verse 13, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient in years and was presented to him. Sovereignty and glory and kingly power were given to him so that all people and nations of every language should serve him. His sovereignty was to be an everlasting sovereignty which should not pass away. And his kingly power such as should never be impaired. 
And when they heard son of man, that's what they thought. They were thinking. Now they were right in what they were thinking. They were just a few hundred years ahead of that fulfillment of that prophecy. That is going to happen. That's exactly what's going to happen. But when he presents him as the son of man at this point, he presents himself as the suffering servant, the one who must die for the sin of the world. And this is what they were not able to grasp. All right, so Jesus said, the light is among you still, but not for long. He had said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I've come into a world of darkness, and the light is the only thing that will dispel the darkness, not only in the world, not only in a community, not only in the church, but in the individual light, life. The light of Christ in my life is the only thing that dispels darkness in my light. So he says, the light is among you physically, but not for long. He's not going to be here, but just a matter of a few more days. He said, go on your way while you have the light so that darkness may not overtake you. And every time he begins to speak of the light, he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of himself in us when he speaks of the light of the world today. When the light of the world in the world today is the Christ in the born-again Christian. That's the only light that we have in the world today. And he says, uh, once again, that only while you're in the light, while you're walking in the light, will you be delivered from the snares and the pitfalls of a, a single day or of your life, the rest of your life. So as you walk in the light, as you walk with Christ, you can see where the, the dangers are. You can see where the pitfalls are. You'll know where they are and you'll be delivered from them because the light will give you what you need there to, to dispel the darkness so you won't fall, so you won't uh, be defeated in your Christian life. Now he says, while you have light, in other words, there's a, there's a time limit here. See, we think everything goes on forever. Have you ever really noticed how we think we have all the time in the world to do whatever we want to do? Once again, and over and over, all through the Gospel of John, he has made it clear that there's a time limit. There's a time limit on many things. There's a time limit on almost everything. And he says, while you still have light, while you still have a chance to see and to know me, trust to the light, trust to the light, trust me. And he, he indicates there so that you may become men of light. There is a time limit. And, and I was reading in uh, Ironside's commentary, uh, what he, he said he was in a Sunday school. Are you familiar with who Ironside is? He's... Um, I don't know what denomination. It's not Baptist, but uh, do you know Sam? I'm not. It's not Baptist. I'm not real sure, but I love his commentary. Oh, he's so deep and so good. And he said he was explaining to a young uh, children's age Sunday school class kind of what this meant, that there's, there's a time limit. There's time, like we know from statistics, that up until age 17, most people are born again, right? After age 17, how many in this classroom uh, were born again before age 17? Let's just take a test. Raise your hand. All right, that proved it. How many were born again after age, uh, between age 17 and 40? All right, how many were born again after 40? Do we have many after 40? <laughs> that, might, that might be the difference. <laughs> but I think you would find this if you did it in a, a big group of people. I think you would find this to be a statistic that would hold true, that most people are born again, find the Lord, in a simple childlike way, receive him, 
to themselves before age 17. And so Ironside said that he was with this young children's age Sunday school class, and we just had a meeting on, on leading children through a counseling experience, and we'll have many children come forward during the revival. And they have uh, very capable people who are able to counsel with his ch these children so they'll know what they're doing, so that you won't just come down with a friend. We don't ever want that to happen. We want them to understand what they're doing. And so he said, when he explained this to these young children, he said, what happens with you is this, when you're very young, when you're your age, you know, you hear about Jesus and you love him. It's so easy for you to love him and appreciate what he's done and everything. And, and many times you'll say, oh, yes, I want Jesus. I want that life. And, it's, and that's very simple and very easy. Now, as we get a little bit older, we've had time after time where we've heard the gospel and we rejected it. And every time you reject, every time you hear it and you know what you must do today, and you reject it, your heart gets a little bit harder. And in explaining this to the children, he says, your heart gets a little bit more like a stone. And he said, then after so long a period, and you've re you said no to Jesus and no to Jesus, your heart gets more like a stone and more hard like a stone. And so this little girl, he said, you know, you never know who's listening or what they're really getting from it. But there was one little girl, he had the mother come back and the father come back and tell him about later, went home from Sunday school that morning. And his father, her father was sitting in the chair with his cigar and his paper out. And she went running up and jumped up in his lap and said, oh, daddy, daddy, feel, feel and see if you got a stone inside you. And he said, oh, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, let's feel around and see if said, the, a man in Sunday school said that you had a stone inside your stomach. Well, this father, you know, had angers, many times angers, and they think, oh, boy, what are they doing to kids over there? He called his wife, and he said, what in this world did they tell this child? At Sunday school, this morning, I'm not going to let them go back anymore. They fill them full of all this garbage about a stone being inside you, inside your stomach. So the mother, the wife, said at him, because she had been there listening to this, and she began to explain what he was really saying in a little more... Uh, terms that, that he could understand and tears were just running out of her eyes as she said what what she's saying is that she loves Jesus right now but that you have said no to him so long she's so afraid so afraid that you may have gotten so hard that you won't be able to receive Jesus to reach out and receive him she's so scared that her daddy won't be able to and so uh, the, the end of this story was that he was so touched by the child's concern for him and the mother, the wife's tears and her explaining it to him that he said, he got up, dropped his paper and he said, well, I got to do something about this right now. And fortunately, there was one of those, those unique cases case of where, you know, he was still in a place where God could speak to his heart and he could respond. But many times, and the pastor shared one, one account with us at a teachers and officers meeting just recently of a man who rejected and rejected and rejected, had been to one Billy Sunday revival after the other, and this was years back when Billy Sunday was on the scene. And he said, no, and no, and no, and I will not have any part of it. And God was just working with him in such a tremendous kind of way. And just every time he'd go, he would just be, you know, all unnerved over the whole thing. But he would say, I do not want it. I do not want it. And one day he finally shook his fist toward heaven. And he said, I, he called the Holy Spirit the devil. And after that, he went to revival after revival after revival. And he never had one moment's conviction again. So his heart had hardened to the point that the only thing God had to do with it was he allowed him, allowed him 
to let his heart, his own heart harden to the point where he couldn't receive the gift. That's so tragic. I have seen this in my own experience. I had one young girl in a single adult Sunday school class I had who uh, time after time I would sit with her in church and I'd see her grab onto the back of the pew and shake. It started where her body would just literally tremble. And she was under such heavy conviction until I would think, you know, there's no way she can keep from doing something, doing something positive about her relationship to Christ. And time after time, I saw it get to where she didn't tremble. She didn't hold on to the back of the pew. And then I saw her stand there and they give an invitation and she would smirk, just a smirk. Such a tremendous change. And she did that to herself. After every one of those times, I would say, please, let me go with you. Let's go to the preacher. Let's go and talk about it and see if you, you know, you can't come to a place where you can surrender your life to Christ. And she would say, no, I know what I have to do. I know what I should do, but I don't want to do it. Now, she finally reached a point where there was no conviction any longer. And there's another uh, man I've had the experience. There have been several. It breaks your heart. If you, if you want to know something that will break your heart, it'll be to work with somebody and talk to somebody and see the conviction and then time after time see them reject and then come to the point where they don't have any conviction anymore. And that's really, I think, the most tormenting thing in the whole. You turmoil of soul turmoil of soul must have been included in that but there's this this man we uh saw sunday after sunday standing there grabbing on just under such conviction and then we saw him just absolutely reach a place where it just didn't bother him anymore you know it would scare me to death i would i would feel like if i ever heard something like that the next time I had any conviction whatsoever, I believe I'd chunk everything in the world and do whatever I had to do to get right with the Lord. For fear, I might have allowed my heart to harden to such a point that one day I wouldn't be able to reach out and receive Him. All those things. He said, do that now. Trust the light now. Trust it while you have the light. Because one day you may reach a point where you don't have the light. All right. Verse... 37, in spite of the many signs which Jesus had performed in their presence, they would not believe in him. For the prophet Isaiah's utterance had to be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we reported? And to whom has the Lord's power been revealed? So it was they could not believe. Uh, for there is another saying of Isaiah, He has blinded their eyes and dulled their minds, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their minds and turn to me to be healed. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. I gave you the example, the, the, all of that before, so before you heard this prophecy, because this is exactly what this prophecy is saying. Uh, Isaiah had preached his heart out the very best that he knew how under the guidance of the Lord at that time. And so many other prophets to cry out, What can you do? You know? You, you pour out your heart, you pour out your soul, you expand on the scriptures, you, you give in love the plan of salvation and the love of God in Christ, and time after time it's refused. You know, you get to a place where you say, what, what can you do? What can you do? And the cry here is not that God has blinded their eyes and dulled their minds, but that he has reached a place in his love and in his wooing, where he allows them to even harden their heart to the point where they can't reach out. That's the only thing God has to do with this whole thing, is that in his permissive will, he allows you to reject him forever. 
He doesn't make you do anything about it. He never did and he never will. If somebody is waiting for God to zap you in some kind of way and cause you to have to do it, you, you're going to be waiting forever. He won't do it that way. He never has done it that way. He only loves and woos and tells and warns and does all of these things. But you, in the end, have to make your free choice to accept or reject him. For all that, even among those in, in authority, oh and, oh, and go back up, it says, in, in spite of the many signs which Jesus had performed in their presence, they would not believe him. If you're waiting for signs and wonders, a miracle, some sign, a wonder, a miracle, and then you'll believe, forget it. They saw, well, let's look at uh, eight, John records eight signs in the realm of works and six signs in the realm of words. So let's look at what these people saw. They saw water turned in wine, into wine at Cana at the wedding feast. They saw the cleansing of the temple. They saw the healing of the nobleman's son from a distance. They saw the healing of the derelict, the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. They saw the feeding of the 5,000. They saw the stilling of the storm. They saw the blind man uh, able to see. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Man, he ran the gamut. Everything you could do in the way of miraculous sign and wonder, he did. And John says over in the very last of this, very last verse, he says, and these were not all the signs that he performed because there would not be pages enough to record all that Jesus did in that three and a half year period. There wouldn't even be enough pages in a book to record everything he did. So think what they saw in the realm of works and signs and wonders. How many believed? Such a handful by anybody's standards. It wouldn't be enough to even say that was any kind of revival, result of a revival. We have, we have 12 apostles, and one of those was a devil, so let's skip him and take 11. We have 150 recorded. We have 500 on another occasion, 500 believers and 150 on another occasion. For three and a half years ministry, that's not a great number, is it? And look what he did. Look what a life he lived among them. And very few really believed in him. So that's the turmoil of his soul. If you want to know what his turmoil was, begin to look at some things like this. All right, six, realm, six in the realm of words. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Six different signs that he gave in the realm of words. So works and words, they had heard enough to believe. And they didn't. That's what he's saying. In spite of many signs, they refused to believe on him. All right, so for all that, even among those in authority, a number believed in him. There were some, but would not acknowledge him on account of the Pharisees for fear of being banned from the synagogue, for they valued their reputation more uh, with men rather than the honor which comes from God. So here we have what happens among us still today. Here are a group of people in the presence of the Son of God doing all these signs and wonders and everything. There were some who believed even at this point, but they refused to acknowledge him. They refused to, to confess it openly because, and John includes it, because they valued what men said more than what God thought, what God said. 
I think that's the greatest tragedy in these verses that I came across. The point where we will deny Christ, we won't receive Him for our own, we won't live for Him because of what somebody's going to say. And you know it's true, and I know it's true. This happens all around us every day. There is no such thing, I don't think, as a silent disciple. I think the contradiction of the two words there is makes this clear. Silent disciple. If you're a disciple, you're not silent. If you're silent, you're not a disciple. It's almost as simple as that. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. So he makes it clear that there's a need for confessing him openly. And so what you have here is just like you have today, people who care about what somebody would think. And I don't know how many times it's been my experience where there's been a, a wife, for instance, on several different occasions. And this woman I was talking to initially, she finally broke that down. And I'm so glad she did. But the first time I went into her home and talked to her about her relationship to Christ, she sat on that sofa and cried her eyes out and said, I cannot do anything about it, even in my own personal life at that point, because this is my second marriage and my husband will leave me. He will divorce me if I accept Christ and stand up for him. That's not the only time I've heard that. I've heard that on more than one occasion from a wife who knew she needed to do something about Christ in her own life but cared more about what her husband said than about what God said. Now, I know you're submissive to your husband, and I'm not saying anything about that. I believe in that, and you know I do. But when it comes to your eternal destiny, I believe I'd rather lose my husband than God. I mean, just think about it. And what, what, how we fool in ourselves. We must not believe in God. We must not believe in eternity if we will allow ourselves to be separated from Him forever and go to hell because of anybody. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And if we really would ever recognize Him for who He is and what He's done, we'd stop worrying about what somebody else thinks. And we would live for Him with everything in us. We'd give him everything we had simply because we care more about what he says than what men say. We need to reach that point. And that's what I told her that day. And she, she couldn't do it then, but it wasn't very long. She was tormented by it. It wasn't very long. She called me and she said, 3 o'clock this morning, I was on my knees. Now, it ends up, she came and she said, will this, will my giving my life and making it public, will God save my marriage? This was her next question. Well, there's no guarantee that her marriage is going to be saved, but the guarantee is that he will never leave her or forsake her, and he'll give her everything she needs to go through whatever she has to go through. Now, nobody else is going to offer you that. There's not another person in this world who can offer you every bit of the grace you need to sustain you every day of your life. And would you turn that down for anybody? I can't, I can't see it. So Jesus cried aloud, When a man believes in me, he believes in him who sent me rather than in me. Seeing me, he sees him who sent me. He's turning them to the, the divine Christ, to the God, uh, the 100% God in him and, and away from the humanity. I've come into the world as light so that no one who has faith in me should remain in darkness. No one. That's what he wanted. No one would remain in darkness. But if anyone hears my words and pays no regard to them, I am not his judge. I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There's a judge for the man who rejects me and does not accept my words. The words that I spoke, 
That's the judge on the last day. That's what I've already explained. Don't have to go over it again. The judge is the word. You heard the word. You rejected it. You heard the, the written word. You heard the living word. And you rejected it. That's your judge. That's what sends you to hell. All right. I do not. The Father who sent me has himself commanded me what to say and how to speak. I know that his commands are eternal life. What the Father has said to me, therefore, that's what I speak. He spoke only what he had been given from the divine nature from the divine nature. It was never the human Jesus speaking. It was always the divine Jesus. It was always God speaking through him. He limited himself in, in many ways. And one of the ways was he limited himself as far as submission was concerned. He always listened. He identifies with us because he listened for the word from the Father. And he always obeyed it. Or right, we come down to the, um, 